Exodus chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a, a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this account that is preserved for your church. We pray that you would still our hearts and teach us during this time. May our minds be enlivened. May our hearts be soft. And may our wills be pliable to the teaching that you have for us. Teach us great things, we pray, from your treasure. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I want to address the subject of consistency. I think consistency is one of the most underrated virtues in the Christian life. And I want us to reflect upon it because I think this passage really speaks to the value of consistently living by faith in the promises of God. Consistency matters. You know this, right? How you live at home is hopefully how you live at work and vice versa. No one respects a man or a woman who's two-faced and who lives differently in different settings. If you're a student, how you act at school, how you respond to your teachers is hopefully how you're responding to your parents at home. 
The way we conduct ourselves on Sundays is hopefully the same way we conduct ourselves the rest of the week. Consistency matters because faith is demonstrated by its actions. I think marriage is a good picture of the importance of consistency, isn't it? A lot of people today, they're obsessed with authenticity, which is really kind of rooted in how we feel. But I think consistency is much more valuable. In a marriage, for instance, we promise to forsake all others. A man leaves his father and his mother and, his mother and he cleaves to his wife. And in a marriage, typically we build something together, don't we? Most couples build a family, which takes time. That's a process. Thus, we see the fruit of the covenant that's established between a man and a woman grow as they bless others that are welcomed into the family, into the fold. And of course, a marriage is sacrificial. It's a daily dying to self and a laying down of one's life for another. And that's what Christ, of course, did for the church. He gave himself up for her. So marriage is a picture of cons consistency. This morning we're returning to um, a series in Genesis that I've entitled The Gospel According to Genesis. And over the course of the next few sermons that I'll preach, which will certainly be off and on, we'll be looking at the life of Abraham. So it's kind of a mini-series within a series. Here he's named Abram. Now, Abram is a pillar of faith. We see that throughout this Genesis narrative. The author of Hebrews also commends him as such. So I don't want to disparage Abram as anything but a giant in the faith. But Abram isn't always consistent. While Abram is a middle-aged man, he's 75, but he's going to live to be 125, he is a babe in the faith. And like many young Christians who've come to know the Lord, I think he displays some amazing transformations in his life. Sometimes he truly shines. He demonstrates for us what it looks to live by faith in the promises of God, but then at other times he falters. And I think we see both of those in this chapter. By the way, why do I call this living by faith in the promises of God and not just simply faithfulness or obedience? Well, it is true that faith is proven by obedience. We don't want to make faith intellectual assent and divorce that from actions. But I think that we should always maintain that this passage is, is, is about the promises of God. And those have priority. They have precedence to Abram's responses. God had made some remarkable, gracious, really stunning promises to Abram regarding his future. He said he would bless Abram by making him into a great nation which means that he would eventually have to give this so-called exalted father a seed. He said he would show him a land, and later in this passage he promised to give him the land that he was standing upon. And he said that he would use Abram as a blessing, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. So these are marvelous and amazing promises. And it shows us that grace always precedes faith. The gospel always begins with God's grace and God's call. I think we see this even more clearly if we just back up a few verses to chapter 11, beginning in verse 31. There it says that Terah, who's Abram's father, he took Abram and Lot, Lot who is the son of Abram's brother Haran, from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Why did they do this? Well, Acts 7, which Pastor Jeffrey will preach from in just a couple of weeks, 
It tells us that God appeared to Abram when he was still in Mesopotamia, that is in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Joshua 24, so we can kind of piece together some other passages that explain this a little further. Joshua 24 adds that Abram's people worshiped and served pagan gods when they lived in Mesopotamia before God called them out of there. So Abram left paganism in order to follow God's call. Now, for whatever reason, they appear to have traveled to Haran before coming to the land of Canaan. It's not exactly clear why this is. Haran is a bit out of the way. It's not a direct route between Ur and Canaan. It's a bit to the north. Maybe this is an indication that they tarried, that their faith in the call of God maybe faltered a little. I'm not sure whether that's the case. But in any event, after the death of Abram's father, Terah, God again appeared to Abram and told him to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so again, Abraham up and went. This is the first step of faith that I think Abram demonstrates for us. He forsook. He forsook all that was familial and familiar, didn't he? He left his country, he left his kindred, even his father's house. Actually, to be fair, again, Abram has already done some forsaking at this point. He left behind the pagan gods that he, prom- that he had served previously in the land of Ur. Again, faith is always precipitated by the gracious call of God, but faith is proven by actions. <clears throat> Abram left that way of life. He forsook it. And now think about what he's leaving behind. He left his roots behind, didn't he? He left his country even his ethnicity, if you will, behind. After all, isn't that what, isn't what ethnos means? Nation, right? He left his nation behind. Maybe even more importantly, he also left his family behind. Yes, his father is now dead and one of his brothers too, but Abram still left kin behind in order to follow the call of God because that's what God called him to do. Does that remind you of anyone else? Once when Jesus was speaking to the people, his mother and his brothers were standing outside asking to speak with him. But Jesus replied to the man who brought him that message. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then stretching out his hand over his disciples, he said, here are my mother. Here are my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father, that's my family. Or consider this radical statement. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. In another place, Jesus promises something for that forsaking. He says, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Forsaking is an act of faith in the promises of God. Of course, no one is calling you to forsake your family so that you can follow your own affections. But God is calling us to forsake any love, even familial ties, that would prove greater than he is. By the way, this is what I find so perplexing about the presence of kinism in any corner of the church. It's revolting because the church is never defined by kin. Church is to be the people who have left behind kin in order to become one 
with Christ and to form the one true united family of God. You know, several years ago, I pastored a, um, a small church and we had a Mormon couple come to us and they showed a great interest in our worship and our fellowship and they wanted to meet with me. So I met with them on several occasions, encouraging them really to leave the Mormon cult that they were a part of. And he even confessed to me, the husband even confessed to me that he didn't even believe the things that were taught in that church. But sad to say, in the end, he went back to it because his family was just so entrenched in it, generations upon generations of Mormons. And that's how he identified and he could not break away from it. Leaving family for the sake of Christ is costly, no doubt about it, but it is worth every bit of it. Some of you, I know, by faith, you've decided to forsake all others, even family, in order to follow the Lord's call. And I commend you for that. Stay the course. But not only did Abram forsake his kin, he also forsook comforts and potential wealth to pursue the call of God. I know that Abram is always portrayed as a wealthy man, and he was indeed wealthy. But you know, in, in worldly terms, he was taking a great risk by heading to a strange land where he had no connections and no reason to think that he would prosper except for the promises of God. Yet God honored his faith. On every occasion, Abram had the opportunity to be generous because the Lord always provided an abundance for this saint. You know, it's always a tremendous encouragement to me whenever I meet wealthy Christians in the church who have never hoarded wealth, who have learned from the beginning, from an early age, not to grasp at earth, earthly treasure, who have tithed faithfully, even given sacrificially before they became wealthy. What a testimony is to see the Lord then bless them when they forsook riches. That's not a prosperity gospel, right? The Lord honors that kind of generosity. Consistently living by faith involves forsaking. It involves forsaking kin and riches. But it does also involve building something. And to see this, look with me again at verses 7 and 8. I want you to notice that in each of these verses, it says that Abraham built something. He built an altar to the Lord. Let me try and provide some explanation for the significance of this gesture. Verse 6 says that Abram passed through the land and the first place that he settled was Shechem. And there it says that the Lord appeared to Abram and promised him to your offspring, I will give this land. Now this is either the second or the third theophany, the appearing of God. To Abram, remember that he appeared to him back in Ur, and then he spoke to him again, I'm not sure how exactly, in Haran, telling him to go to the land that he would show him. And now he appears to him a third time when he gets to Shechem and he essentially says, here it is. Here's the land that I was going to show you. I give you this land. So what did Abram do? He built an altar. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, to answer that, let's first consider the significance of Shechem. By the way, I think it helps to appreciate that this account is one that was written by Moses for the people of Israel centuries after Abram's life. I say that because in Genesis 33, we see that two generations later, Abram's grandson, Jacob, makes a point to buy this very land from Shechem's father. 
So as you can see, it must be named Shechem sometime later. And then it says he rebuilt Abram's altar. That's when the deed was obtained. And then centuries later, when Joshua led the people across the Jordan into the promised land, God renewed his covenant with his people, guess where? At Shechem. And Joseph's bones, which had been brought up out of Egypt, they were then buried there. You see the point? This is Israel's land. The moment that God says to your offspring, I give this land, it belongs to Israel, and Abram believes God at his word. And so he builds an altar. Now we, think, we tend to think of an altar as a, a worship shrine, and it is, but this is also a marker. This is a testimony that this land belongs to Abram and his descendants. That's why Jacob rebuilds that altar and why Joshua had Joseph's bones buried there. They're claiming it. By faith, Abram is building something on the land that serves as a marker showing that he believes the promises of God, that God will fill this land with his descendants, and that God will reign in this land. Maybe small, but God will honor this gesture of faith and he will expand his kingdom from this place. And then from Shechem, Abram proceeds to travel to Bethel, also named Bethel a little later on by Jacob, who had called it the house of God because the Lord appeared to him in a dream at that place. And what does Abram do when he gets to Bethel? Again, he builds another altar, maybe just an earthen structure or some stones that are piled together. What significance does Bethel have? Well, besides meeting Abram's grandson here in Judges as well as 1 Samuel, we see that the ark was kept at Bethel in the early stages of Israel's history, and the people went there to offer sacrifices to the Lord and inquire of him. It was no holier place for young Israel. So this too becomes a significant location for that nation. Abram believes the promises of God and he operates by faith. The building of these altars wasn't just a matter of worship, it was a matter of proclamation. It was a visible memorial that said, this is the land God's giving us. And I think we can see this in a couple of distinct ways. First, notice in verse six, the remark that's made here, the Canaanites were in the land. Now think about that. Would you go to somebody else's land and build an altar on their property? I mean, even if you truly believe that God was giving their land to your descendants, wouldn't you be tempted to just kind of keep a low profile, keep your head down, keep your mouth shut? Would you build an altar which says this is a testimony that this kingdom will be ours? Not only this, but then also in verse 8, having built the second altar near Bethel, it says that Abram began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now that sounds like worship or prayer, and it is. But really the sense is that he publicly invoked, that he once again proclaimed the name of Yahweh right in the midst of these populated cities of Bethel and Ai. You know, an invocation can be a proclamation just as much as a, as a prayer. A few weeks ago, I was invited to come and um, deliver the invocation at City Hall for their regular council meeting. And I was, I prepared my prayer. I was very respectful. I offered up sincere prayers for them. But let me tell you, my invocation was also a proclamation. 
right? Because I took that opportunity to declare that the Lord is the one who appoints all rulers and governors. And King Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's very cool to have that opportunity. I've never had that opportunity in California. Thank you, Texas. <laughs> Abram built altars because they were public proclamations that were rooted in the promises of God, which he believed. Yet that was an act of tremendous faith. That's because even though Abram by faith claimed the land that God promised to him, he did not receive the things promised. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11 says that on two occasions, did not receive the things promised. Indeed, Abram died without owning anything more than a burial plot. Abram by faith went to live in a land of promise. And he lived in tents. He lived in tents along with his descendants, Isaac and Jacob. Tents are for what? Sojourners, right? Now, it's not that Abraham thought, well, I'm just passing through this land. This world is not really my home. No. <laughs> On the contrary, Abram had been promised this land. And he was claiming the land as he passed through it. But he would not receive the things promised. And he would not grasp at land ownership or building monuments his own way in his timing for his name's sake. Instead, he was looking forward to a city whose designer and builder was God. What a contrast Genesis 12 is to Genesis 11. There we saw men congregate to build a city with a tower that reached to heaven to make their name great. And here we see God promising to make Abram's name great by promising him land and Abram responding by erecting what are almost insignificant monuments that demonstrate his great faith in the promises of God. Abram lived by faith in the promises of God. Not only did he move from place to place, but he endured unjust disputes throughout his life. He was surrounded by perversity during his sojourning. He and his son had wells seized by the inhabitants of the land. They had to navigate peace with troublemakers all the time. They were surrounded by people who behaved impulsively and immorally, evidenced by Pharaoh, assuming that he could just take what wasn't rightfully his. Again, Abram died with nothing more than one son and one burial plot. But in 400 years, in 400 years, his descendants would come back to this place and take the land from the Canaanites. Who knows what can happen in 400 years? Listen, this past week, we had Delana Brooks from the Pregnancy Help Center. She came and was uh, our guest at our midweek, and Pastor Jeffrey was able to interview her. The, the Pregnancy Help Center is, it's a beachhead in my neck of the woods in Benbrook. We like to think it's making a huge difference. And it is. It is because every life counts. But it's also, in some ways, just scratching the surface, isn't it? And I say that because right next door, right next door, more prominently displayed, is the Clinica Hispana. I looked up their website this week because I wondered whether they promoted a woman's so-called right to choose an abortion. I know abortion is illegal in the state of Texas, thank the Lord. But I wanted to know whether, what their stance was. And having translated this from their website, they kind of make it known. 
They say our caring and knowledgeable team offers personalized guidance to help you make informed decisions about your reproductive health, ensuring you have the control you need in your family planning journey. I think you can read between the lines where their stance is. PHC, Pregnancy Help Center, is Abram's altar in the land of the Canaanites, right? But the meek will inherit the earth. Overturning Roe v. Wade, that was a huge victory. But the battle's not over. Satan is not going to lie down without a fight. I know it's slow going. Sometimes we feel like we're just erecting little altars that testify to the kingdom of our Lord. But the victory belongs to the risen Jesus. Be encouraged. Know that your work in the Lord is not in vain. You know, the Apostle Paul says, be steadfast. Be consistent. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Trust in his promises and practice a consistent and a persistent faith, for God is putting all things under Christ's feet. What could happen in 400 years? Let's plan for that. This passage demonstrates remarkable faith. That is until Abram falters. His faith, like ours, is inconsistent. He didn't always live by the promises of God. Sometimes he lived by the rule of self-preservation. I know I'm going to have to move more quickly to cover this second half of the chapter. Verse 10, verse 10 says that there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. I wonder, should he have done that? There are times when God's people were permitted, even instructed, to go down into Egypt. It's true with Jacob when there's a famine in the land and his son Joseph had invited him down. In Genesis 20, 46, God says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. There I will make you into a great nation. And then also Joseph, this is Joseph, the husband of Mary. He was visited by an angel who told him to flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child Jesus to destroy him. So it's not simply wrong to go down to Egypt. But there are other times that Scripture chastises people for looking to Egypt. Most notably, when Israel was in the wilderness, there was no food, and they longed to be back in Egypt to have their stomachs filled. Likewise, Isaiah, he chastises Israel for, quote, setting out to go to Egypt without asking for my direction, taking refuge in the shelter of Pharaoh. Another place it says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, to those who do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. There's no indication here that Abram sought the Lord's direction. I hardly think that's definitive. But what Abram does next seems to indicate a crisis of faith, certainly an inconsistency of faith. He lies about his relationship with his wife, Sarai. Now, to be fair, I know that there are commentators, some who are beloved by us, who would be beloved by our congregation, who make the case that Abram did nothing wrong here. As some see it, Abram was telling a half-truth. Sarah was his half-sister, the daughter of his father, but not his mother. Some suggest that Abram was just acting shrewdly with those who were ruthless. And then also the Bible never directly rebukes Abram for this so-called sin, 
And besides all that, Pharaoh was the one who was cursed. Abram was blessed through this incident. Pharaoh was the sinner. He saw something pleasing, which he took. Does that sound familiar? Besides all this, isn't this just an outworking of the promise to Abram? That I will bless those who bless you, but him who dishonors you, I will curse. I mean, what could be more dishonorable than to take someone else's wife? So Pharaoh just got what was coming to him, right? But hold on. Show of hands. Maybe actually, let's not do a show of hands. Then <laughs> second thought. Which of you men think it would be all right to pretend that your wife is your sister out of self-preservation? Or to take it one step further, right? How many of you think letting another man sleep with your wife so that it goes well with you would be acceptable? You see, Abram's motive is key here, isn't it? He confesses that he wants things to go well for him. And sure, he's afraid for his own skin, but now he's not living by faith in the promises of God. Because God said he would make his name great. God said he would make of him a great nation. And God promised that he would curse those who dishonored Abram. Did he believe God? Now, to be sure, I think Pharaoh was rightly cursed. Maybe in his culture it's acceptable for kings to take whatever they want, but that is never right. And he had dishonored Abram by taking his wife into his harem. Pharaoh may have even taken her, as it says in verse 19. However, notice the outrage of Pharaoh in verse 18. What is this you've done? Sound familiar again? What is this you have done to me? Abram was supposed to be a blessing to the nations. By faith, Abram had the opportunity to display his faith in the promises of God by being honest to men who did not know or fear Jehovah. But instead, he let, instead of letting his righteousness shine before the nations, he faltered. I ask you, who sounds more righteous? Abram who says, tell them you're my sister, or Pharaoh who says, why didn't you tell me she was your sister? Take her. Go. Abram, you will be a blessing. Yeah, not so much. And you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. Abram missed out on seeing that aspect of the promise fulfilled because his faith, especially early on, was inconsistent. But we know that the fulfillment of this promise will have to depend on a more faithful one. In you, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You know, in his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul explains that this promise refers to the seed of Abram, the one who was in Abram at the time, Christ Jesus. The promises were made to Abram and to his offspring, to his seed, who is Christ. This was God's future promise that he would justify the Gentiles by faith, that he would include them in his economy of salvation. Those who are of faith are blessed. All those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abram. Glory be to Christ, who is the one who is consistent, who is able to bless the nations. 
How did Christ Jesus demonstrate consistent faith? Well, he forsook riches, didn't he? He left behind the comforts and familiarity of heaven to tabernacle, literally tent, with us. He left his Father's side in heaven to come to the land that God would show him in order to redeem lost souls. And when he arrived, what did he do? Then he traveled throughout the land, announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. The lame walked again. Lepers were cleansed. The dead were raised up. He even cast out demons from demon-possessed people. He was binding up the strong man and raiding his house. See, Jesus was claiming that which was rightfully his. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. He was building his church and the gates of hell would not be able to withstand its advance. You know, once Jesus even traveled through Shechem because there was something there that belonged to him. Remember the woman at the well? That was in Shechem. It says Sychar, but Sychar Shechem. And Jesus did not fail the test when his life was on the line. He didn't disown his bride at the crucial moment of testing in order to save his own skin. Instead, he laid down his life for her. Jesus believed the promises of God. He was found to be faithful, and so God has raised him up from the dead, and in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Soli Deo Gloria for his wonderful plan. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we honor and worship Jesus for being consistent, for believing your promises and for being our redeemer, redeemer and savior. And we worship him as the king. Thank you, Father, for this gracious covenant of which we have read, which we are benefactors of. Thank you, Lord, that you have included us, that we are those families that have been blessed through Abram. And we thank you that our salvation does not rest upon our consistency of faith, but on the sureness of Jesus. So help us to run to him. This we pray for his namesake. Amen.